My name is Chris McCallum. Uh, my name is Connell Morrison, and I'm the director of Strutting and Fretting by Chris McCallum. Strutting and Fretting is about uh, the last night of a disastrous tour of Macbeth. When the show is over, the lead actor sits in his dressing room, digging through the embers of his career, trying to work out where it all went wrong. But as the play proceeds, uh, we get to see just how intoxicated he, he still is with the role and with the play itself. So um, it's, it's very funny, and along the way, it just carries great insights into just what well, has to be one of the greatest plays of all time. Uh, it wasn't based really on anything autobiographical. I mean, there were stories I was told and things I heard, and there are certain bits of it that are based on um, things that I've seen or witnessed in dressing rooms, but it's not an autobiographical play. I've never, for instance, played Macbeth, although I have been in several productions of the play. At school, I played Fleance. At college, I played the bloody sergeant and I was the doctor with Lady M at the end and I was some steward or young steward or one of those people halfway through and then when I left college I did it again and I played Banquo on a national tour of the UK. Um, Macbeth is a, a masterpiece of editing you know it's absolutely kind of contemporary in, in that you start very late on we start at a point of war we meet our two heroes you get your witches in very very early on then you meet the ambitious wife. So it puts it all in there. It puts the occult, it puts war, it puts regicide, and it puts um, a domestic drama, and it just stirs that hell brew. And it goes like a bullet train, you know. Um, most Shakespeare plays, whenever you're, you're squaring up to direct them, you know, you do think, okay, what, what edits am I going to do? Macbeth, you cut nothing, you know. It just barrels along and the tension and the excitement and the complications and the paranoia build. So by the time you're smashed into the wall at the end, you've just been on this incredible roller coaster um, of a trip. It's a, it's a superb piece of, of narrative construction, you know. Well, the truth of it is that large sections of, of the witches' scenes were rewritten by Thomas Middleton, who was a partly a contemporary of Shakespeare, but I think he was younger and he was more part of the Jacobean tradition, which was perhaps a bit more bloodthirsty. He was referred to in a recent BBC documentary as the Tudor Tarantino. And uh, so he rewrote these, uh, some of the witches' scenes, and the story goes that he used sections of a genuine satanic ritual. So then when the play is performed in its entirety, which it isn't very often, but when it's performed in its entirety, these sections are obviously thrown into the ether and bring whatever malign influence they can onto the stage. Well, I've directed the play twice, once on the walls of Kilkenny Castle for Richard Cook and Cowell's company, Bickerstaff, and once for the Royal Shakespeare Company with local talent Paddy O'Kane and Derv Lacrotti playing the happily married couple. So I'm immensely aware of, of its tradition and including, you know, various actors who, who wanted to refer to it as the Scottish play, although apparently the rule is that whenever you're in it, you're allowed to call it Macbeth. So I'm not quite sure why the curse is lifted and you're allowed to say it then, basically. But I've worked with other people who just, you know, who will get very, very upset if you refer to to anything other than the Scottish play and will make you go out and do a dance in the corridor and say things like fair hours and happy hours attend you, basically. So it's a it's a, it's a a profession that has superstition. The famous curse is twofold. It, as, as Chris says in the play, it's partly because there is so much demonology in it that there is meant to be kind of real life kind of uh, uh, witches, curses and spells and that kind of invokes the demons. The other thing, which again he touches very entertainingly on the play, is this, listen, it's a statistical likelihood there's going to be accidents in Macbeth because there's a lot of swordplay and there's a lot of pointy bits of metal that somebody's likely to get hurt, you know. 
the truth, if people are interested in the truth, of course, is that, yes, people do get hurt in productions of Macbeth, but they also get hurt in plays like Coriolanus and in Henry IV Part Two and in Hamlet. And the, the link between all those plays is not that they have any connection with the occult, but that they all involve young men and uh, the excitement of being on stage and light weaponry. And when you put that together, it's a fairly heady cocktail. I was in a, a production with the RSC of a play and within the first week, it was about uh, football hooligans. In I was in it in the early 90s. And um, in the first week, we had, I think, two broken thumbs. Somebody had detached their patella. We had a dislocated shoulder. And I'd walked the senior member of the company during an on-stage blackout, off-stage, straight into a lamp and split his head open. And he needed 14 stitches. This was a man who'd come unscathed through the whole of the Second World War, where he was on Wellington bombers. So it was uh, it was fairly fairly <laughs> rugged production but nobody suggested that that was cursed by the uh, the forces of the occult that was uh, clockwork orange and the fellow who i walked into a lamp was jimmy gardner i don't know if he's still with us i i, I mean it's not my fault if he's not because he survived that well enough but i he was fairly elderly then and i would imagine he's probably a record breaker by now if he's still alive and if he's well whichever he is or not I, you'd wish him well because he's a lovely man but it just it just adds to the mythology of it because it is a play of great kind of force and great potency and sort of a great dark energy so even the fact that it has this kind of sort of penumbra of menace just just adds to it you know but the play captures brilliantly just how you know you develop a relationship with Macbeth as a you know as a theatre artist very early on and it never lets you go you know I said there I work with with Paddy O'Kane um, in Stratford on it we're already planning another production you want to keep coming back to it you know and again, Chris's play just touches on just quite what an addictive entity. Uh, well, obviously, all the works of Shakespeare, but Macbeth in particular is. Well, there is a story that Macbeth was a play that people would always go back to when the theatre was in trouble because it was a guaranteed kind of what they would call bums on seats. It was a guaranteed sellout. So when, when you were in trouble, you always put it on. But of course, that means that the play was always associated with times of trouble. And when there are troubles in one department, there may well be... Uh, malfunctions in another and so perhaps it got associated with with ill times um, without in any way being uh, at fault I, I hadn't seen it on stage although um, I'd heard about it and people just said it was a it, it was a cracker and uh, I sent the script and it just it just lifts off the page beautifully you know it's a mixture of kind of comedy and insight in, into the play and to how theatre works so it was a matter of just working it through with Chris and sort of saying okay what things do we need to sort of change just to uh, just to make it work uh, within the radio medium. But it, it centrally, it, it's all there because his voice in terms of both Chris's sound, which is he's got just a beautiful sort of sonorous voice that you want to keep listening to. But the voice of the character is so fully achieved that there wasn't too much of a shift, actually. It's just his storytelling in it is is, is just consummate and a wonderful mixture between, you know, cheap gags and, and high analysis. He carries that beautifully. There weren't that many shifts, you know, so some cuts and some changes and working with Chris just to, you know, the fact that I was coming to it fresh. So we just kind of probed the play and just said, just take me through your thinking there. Let me just check that that's that's perfectly clear. And he was kind of wonderfully open to that process. So there weren't any wholesale changes, but um, I just think it was possibly refreshing for him to have uh, an outside eye um, look at it, you know. Working with Colin Morrison was, was very interesting because, in fact, he was one of the first people I met when I came here. So we've been toying with the idea of, of working together for uh, 30, 30 years, something like that. So there must be some reason that we haven't. 
but finally we we did and uh what's interesting about it is he's very good on script he interrogates the script and says well what's this and there are certain bits of the play where perhaps you got away with stuff by by simply saying it fast enough or by it being funny that people didn't really look too closely at whether it made sense and he looked at it and went you know this argument doesn't stand up and so you had to kind of we had to go back and work out well what is the argument and where is it not working and then address it in those ways and that was quite interesting it's just good to sort of go back to something and see it with fresh eyes rather than just go well this is it let's do it again like we always do and because he knows it so well you know you've got the writer who is also the actor so he knows it in his bones and obviously it is for all its humor it is written out of chris's own deep appreciation and and love of this play and that that comes across i've always written really i wrote when i was young i wrote at school i left school and i was in a, in a number of bands where i wrote songs then i wrote stories and i started writing films and the first serious film i wrote was actually after i left eastenders i was still into that discipline of getting up every day and i had no reason to so i just started to sit and write and i wrote a film which i sent off to people and, and everybody said this is <laughs> unfilmable but it opened a dialogue, I suppose, with a few people who then came back to me and said, you know, well, if you did this and if you did that and maybe if you tried something different, it would, it might work. So it opened up the possibility of doing that. It was a film about a boy who fell in love with a woman who was a vampire. And he, at some point in their relationship, she had to break the news to him. And it was called Bloodstream. And they were right, it's probably unfilmable. It was impossibly long, I remember. I mean, he starts off very early on in the piece and he explores very entertaining the dichotomy of theatre going. You know, that whenever theatre going works, you're there, you're part of it, two hours, and it's just, there's, there's nothing like it and that'll stay in your memory better than, you know, the film you saw in, in the multiplex. Whenever it goes badly, it just fries you. You'd rather stand in the rain in a, for a bus, you know, that never comes for two hours than have to sort of endure it. And he captures that kind of superbly, the kind of the highs and the lows of theatre going. But as the piece proceeds, you get to see that this actor, again, who's had a very miserable last night, you know, the tour has limped to a kind of a defeat of a conclusion. You get to see that he just he just loves this stuff. And it's that slow revelation of passion and enchantment that actually makes the piece so winning. I like to cut things away. What I tend to write now is I write everything that comes to mind on a subject and for two or three weeks until it's kind of huge and unwieldy and then I sit down with the equivalent of a big pen but now it's just a sort of delete button on a computer and you just cut stuff away and just say, oh, I don't need that and I don't need that and people always say, you know, this bit, you don't need that dialogue, you could do it with a look if he looks at her or she looks at that, that'll tell the story. So it's just stripping away and I quite that's quite good, quite refreshing. And the, the joy of directing is that is it's vive la différence. You get to work on a new play one day or you get to work on a classic or you get to work on a musical. And I, I love that range of it. But you're always just quietly hoping, when can I get back to a Shakespeare, actually? Because there is nothing richer, you know, because it's so challenging for the actors and it's so potentially brilliant uh, for the audiences. So to get back to Shakespeare is, is, the, is the greatest workout as a director. It's, it potentially gives the greatest reward. And if you get it right, and that's far from a given, if you get it right, the reward for the audience is immense. In EastEnders, I played a character called Rod Norman, who was a sort of, he was, it was the idea was that he looked kind of rough and you thought he was a bad lot, but ah, inside he had a heart of gold. 
and there was a character from the very beginning called Punk Mary, and she had a baby and was kind of just constantly incapable of of coping with uh, life in the old East End. And Rod came along like a a knight in a battered leather jacket and and saved her. And uh, and then she left, and then he just went from various lost causes one and after another among the the many women of of Wolford of whom there are a lot of lost causes let's face it and yeah I did that for a while it was great but you know there are limits to how often you can retread the same story I've done oh I've I've done Hamlet I've done Macbeth I've done Taming of the Shrew I've done Pericles I've done The Tempest um I can't remember I need to rummage down the back of my my cultural cupboard and see what else I've done measure for measure as well so and there's a lot more that um, that I'd love to do you know uh, I could just keep coming keep coming back to him he's inexhaustible as a British actor coming here there were immediate kind of opportunities for work but they tend to be things like um, terrible British officer and horrible British prisoner and dreadful British landlord you know that was great because it kept me uh, gainfully employed for a while but now there's a whole load of British actors here and also because a lot of people here watch British TV. They're every bit as schooled in Cockney or uh, Northern dialects as anyone in England. So there's a, there's a lot of competition for those parts now. But I think I'm probably too old for, for most of them. 